The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 39, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches. He does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. With rebukes, you correct man for iniquity. You make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Have you ever felt like that, like the Lord's hand was on you and you were being chastised by him? David certainly did. We're in Joshua 10. This is the second half. This is part two of the battle for Gibeon. It's verses 16 through 27. Before I read these verses, does anybody uh, want to come up here and tell me what the typology you saw last week was? Did anybody figure it out? No? Okay. Uh, that's fine. I just wanted to know if anybody could uh, had thought it through enough because to me it's just fascinating how the word works. The mind of God is displaying things to us in typology and how it so beautifully is revealed in what Jesus has done. So you remember we had the five kings. Okay, we're going to hear about them right now. Keep thinking about Jesus and how does this point to what he has done until the end of the sermon and then, or the second half of the sermon and then we'll talk about it. Verse 16, but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Machedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies, and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who had escaped entered fortified cities and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. 
After typing last week's sermon, it took several days of mulling over the meaning before I finally got my first hint at what is being pictured in this passage around 2.30 one night. I fell asleep after that, and I got up at 3.30 feeling relieved. Without knowing the typology, you get a sermon with a lot of details, but nothing to explain why the words are there. A good life application sermon on verses like this is quick, and it is simple. I'll tell you how quick and simple. I typed the Christmas sermon this past Monday, and I was done by 10 in the morning. Usually, I'm going till 4 or 5 in the afternoon, but I don't have to study for Christmas sermons, and so it takes a few hours, and you're done. I start, obviously, at 3.30 every morning, but uh, I do a few things. Then I got into the sermon, and when I was done with that, I went like this, and I thought, I've got the rest of the day off. Not. (laughs) Reading Matthew Henry's commentaries will fill you with all kinds of ideas about such things, life applications and all that. They have less to do with the substance of the verses and more to energize you to do your best to achieve whatever point he is making. Without knowing the typology and pictures being revealed, you are really no further along the path of knowing what God is actually trying to convey to you. Verse 18 confirmed the typology and it fit the conclusion of last week's sermon and expanded on it. Relief. Our text verse today comes from Deuteronomy 3. And I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them for the Lord your God himself fights for you. In Deuteronomy, Moses encouraged Joshua concerning the battles ahead. He had seen the victories over Sihon and Og and was assured that things would go well for him in Canaan too. The victory in today's passage is proof to him that what Moses had said remains true. You might be wondering already what the passage is about. Well, what is the Bible about? Yes, you in the third row. Yeah, you're correct. It's about Jesus. And what is it that Jesus offers us? Yes, you in the back. That's right, grace. God's grace. See, you've already figured it out. Let's finish and go home for a nap. Or not. Please, sit back down. You have to first find out how the grace is to be given. What do five kings attacking Gibeon have to do with what has already been seen? What does hanging five kings on five trees and then casting them into a cave have to do with with Jesus. Stay tuned and we'll go over it together. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is hidden in the cave at Makedah. It's verses 16 through 21. Verse 16, but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makedah. With the poetic insert about the sun and moon standing over Israel until Joshua had avenged his enemies complete, the narrative continues with these words, And fled five the kings, the these, and are hidden in the cave in Makedah. The word meara, or cave, comes from ur, meaning to be exposed, bare, or made naked. They had gone into the cave to be hidden, but instead they have been exposed. In this case, it is a specific cave as identified by the definite article, the cave in Makeda. Further, the words in Makeda are disputed by some to mean the area of Makeda and not the immediate city because it isn't until verse 28 that the city is said to have been taken. But that verse doesn't give the timing of the event. It only says in that day. Therefore, for all we know, it could have been during the battle itself that someone came to Joshua and said, we have the five kings cornered in a cave at Makeda. The timeline of chapter 10 has not been chronological. In the earlier verses, we can see that. There is no reason to assume it here as well. Hence, the words in Makeda could be referring to the immediate area of the city. It may have been fortified, and that would explain the reason why the kings would go there to hide. With that understood, it next says, verse 17, And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. 
the matter is conveyed to Joshua, certainly to find out what he wanted done with them. And the words are similar to what was said in the previous verse. Nimse'u chamashet hamlachim nechbeim bam ara pe makeda have been found five, the kings, hidden in the cave in Makeda. It again says, in the cave in Makeda. And the words form a sort of pun when the root meaning is understood. The place of hiding, the cave, is where they are exposed. As noted last week, the name Makeda means place of shepherds. In response to this knowledge, Joshua issues his order. Verse 18, so Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave. The order from Joshua is, golu avanim gedolot el pi hamara, roll stones whopping into mouth the cave. With enough men, really large stones could be manhandled to fill in the mouth of the cave. For those inside it, it would be a great chore to undo such a blockade. But just in case... He also says, verse 18 continues, and set men by it to guard them. And appoint over her men to watch them. A cave, like a city, is a feminine noun. Saying it is fine, but simply to identify it as feminine, because that will become important, I use the word her. Joshua has ordered men to be appointed to watch over it until these kings can be dealt with. In the meantime, a battle continues that must be attended to. Verse 19, and do not stay there yourselves. Ve'atem al ta'amodu, and you not do stand. It was appointed for certain men to watch over the cave hiding the kings, but those appointed to continue the battle were not to simply stand there. Instead, they were to continue on. Verse 19 going on, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Pursue your enemies and tail them. Here is a word that is found for the second and last time in the Bible. Zinev. It means to extend or to tail out, coming from zanav, meaning a tail. The only other use was in Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, when Moses spoke of Amalek attacking the rear of Israel when they were tired and weary. Joshua instructs the main army to continue on and complete the task of destroying the enemy and, verse 19 continues, do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. The words read out, titnum lavo el arehem, no give them to enter into their cities. It would be like a present to the enemy if they failed to cut them off. And Joshua was not going to gift them such a thing. They are already defeated. Ki natanam Yehovah Elohechem beyedchem. For has given them Yehovah your God in your plural hand. The Lord has gifted the enemy to Israel. And so Israel is not to give them an inch by allowing them to enter into their cities. Verse 20, then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished. And it came to pass according to Joshua and sons Israel to strike them Stroke whopping very until they finished. The meaning here is referring to the entire battle, not just the cutting off of the tail. In other words, these words initiate the summary of what began in verses 10, 7 through 10. Here's what it said. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beit Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And then it goes down to this verse. Then it happened, while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter. The day of battle is complete before the day's end. The people had avenged their enemies, verse 13, and there was only a few remaining to be dealt with. As it next notes, verse 20 going on, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. The word that gives a false sense of what is being said, as if it is an action based on what was just said. 
Rather, it simply says a statement of fact concerning the battle. Vehasredim sardu mehem vayavou el areha mivsar. And the survivors survived of them and entered into cities fortified. It is these who will be dealt with when the five cities are engaged and destroyed in verses 28 through 42. The battle of the kings and their armies is effectively ended at this time, destroying the cities filled with non-combatants and those few soldiers who fled to their cities would not be a great chore. Rather, it would be a mopping up operation. Verse 21, and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. With the battle sufficiently complete, the people returned to Makeda where Joshua was. The obvious but unsaid meaning is that during the battle, the people were told that Makeda would be the place where the troops settled after the battle. The meaning of Beshalom or in peace is that there was no more war to be waged against the enemy at this time because the armies of the five kings had been defeated. Hence, verse 21 going on, no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Lo harat livnei Yisrael le'ish et leshono. No sharpened two sons Israel to man tongue. It is a proverbial saying going back to Exodus 11. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Some translations make this an action of Israel. None of the house of Israel harmed a man with his tongue. But the context here is not one of the enemies of Israel had sharpened his tongue against any man of Israel. The idea of the Gentiles being dogs would be understood from the Proverbs. As a dog wags its tongue, so would the Gentiles, if they could, but none dared or were able to. These five will never bother you again. They are finished up and have seen their last. They have been the downfall of many men, but they are dead and their time has passed. A new leader has taken control and a new direction is laid out ahead. On him we can every care and worry roll because those five are strung up and dead. Now the enemy can no longer afflict us. We have a new hope because they are dead. Thank God for our Lord, our precious Jesus. Thank God that he is there as our head. Our second thought today, large stones against the cave's mouth. It's verses 22 through 27. Verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. The leader of the people will now have the leaders of the enemy brought out for the purpose of a public humiliation and execution. It is not said when this occurred. If it was on the day of the battle, then the day would be on its way to ending. If it was the next day, it would mean a prolonged humiliation for these kings. Either way, they are now brought forth. The cave that was supposed to hide them is the beginning of their exposure. Verse 23, and they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. Reading the Hebrew, the naming of the kings is almost rhythmic. Melech Yerushalayim, et Melech Hebron, et Melech Yarmut, et Melech Lachish, et Melech Eglon. King Jerusalem, King Hebron, King Jarmuth, King Lachish, King Eglon. They are named as if they are being brought out in order to be presented to the victorious leader. Verse 24, so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua. Here, the kings are presented to Joshua as vanquished enemies. Their power is entirely removed, and soon their presence will be removed as well. It is at the time of bringing them out, verse 24 continues, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel. Rather, it is singular. Vayikra Yehoshua kal ish Yisrael, and called Joshua unto every man Israel. It is as if he is personally addressing each person before him. Each should take heed and understand the importance of the event to take place. Verse 24 continues and said to the captains of the men of war who were with him, And said unto the rulers, men, the war, the goers with him. With all of the men heeding Joshua, he then speaks to their rulers. It is a new word, katsin, or ruler. It comes from katsa, meaning to scrape off. 
Hence, it is one who determines or decides a matter, as if scraping off the superfluous in order to come to a conclusion or a resolution. It is not a common word in Scripture, being used just 12 times. But a good verse to get the sense of it is from Proverbs 25, verse 15. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. They will be making decisions in the future. And so they are to be given an object lesson concerning the state of the enemies they will face in the future based on the enemies they will now humiliate. As such, verse 24 continues, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Though still alive, the kings are utterly powerless. In this state, they will be perfectly humiliated. The foot upon the neck demonstrates possession. They possess the authority over these kings and thus over their domains. The savar, or the back of the neck, is the spot that signifies the settling of a matter, either by the individually or externally. The word comes from tsur, meaning an adversary. If one turns the back of his neck toward the Lord, he has made himself an adversary of the Lord. If one is pursued by an enemy, he will turn his neck to find out how close he is. One can have a yoke on his neck being brought under external control. If one puts his neck to the work, it means he has set himself to do the job diligently. These men are setting themselves upon the enemy while demonstrating total possession and thus authority over them. What is happening here is well reflected by the words of David from 2 Samuel 22. For you have armed me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. Verse 25, then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. The words closely match words already spoken by Moses to Joshua, to the people, by the Lord to Joshua, and to Joshua from the people. Joshua speaks in like manner to these men. Verse 25 continues, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The word against is not in the Hebrew. Also, the word you is emphatic. It says, to all your enemies whom you fight. Any enemies they face in battle will be totally vanquished, just as these kings under their feet will be. With this promise to the people made and with the humiliation of the enemies brought upon them while they're still alive, they will next become another type of humiliation before all the people. Verse 26, and afterward Joshua struck them and killed them. More precisely it reads, and struck them. Joshua thus and put them to death. The kings were brought into total subordination. They were humiliated and then they were put to death all by Joshua. Keep thinking of Jesus. Keep thinking of Jesus. Verse 26 continues and hang them on five trees. Again, it is credited as the action of Joshua. And hanged singular meaning Joshua them upon five trees. One tree for each of the kings. The word etzim means wood. It could be trees, it could be stakes, it could be poles, or so on, made from the tree. As for the act itself, Matthew Poole rightly says this, to their shame and disgrace and the terror of others. It is well stated. It is a note of shame upon the enemy, and it is a note of warning and terror upon those who understood its significance. Next, in accord with the law of Moses, it says, verse 26 going on, and they were hanging on the trees until evening. The Hebrew is more precise, until the evening. It is on the same day that they were hung. On that very same day at evening, which is directed in the law, verse 27, so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, Vehi le'et bo hashemesh tziva Yehoshua. And it came to pass... To time, go, the sun, commanded Joshua. It is the end of the day, and just before the beginning of the new day, that Joshua instructs the men to accomplish the word of the law. Verse 27 continues, and they took them down from the trees. And they took them from upon the trees. This is in accord with the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. 
His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. It is the same symbolism as when the king of Ai was hanged. These men died in sin, a moral issue. It isn't the physical body that is being referred to, even though defilement does come to one who touches a dead body. And it is not a ceremonial defilement that is being referred to. A moral issue is being addressed. And more, it does not mean that a person who is hanged is accursed in the sense of not being saved. That would mean that any saved person who is hanged on a tree would not be saved. That is not the issue. The meaning is that the person becomes a curse when hanged on a tree. Why? Because sin is in all people. Anyone who is publicly displayed on a tree is dead. Death is the final penalty for sin. It is not the physical body, but the sin that is being focused on. Sin hangs on the tree, and that sin is accursed of God. Therefore, the hanging is a sign of being accursed. In leaving the bodies up overnight, the corpses would defile the land. Hence, Joshua instructs compliance with the precept of the law. They, verse 27 continues, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden. The bodies were returned to the cave. Remember that the word cave comes from ur, to be exposed. If you dig a cave, it exposes what was once not seen. It is like a mental pun where they hid in this place that was exposed. Now they are being returned to that place. Verse 27 continues, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth. Va-yasimu avanim gedolot al-pi hamara, and placed stones whopping upon mouth the cave. In verse 18, they rolled stones into the cave's mouth. In verse 22, they opened the cave's mouth. Now they placed stones upon the cave's mouth. It is shut and covered over. With that, it next says a most unusual phrase. Verse 27 finishes with, which remain until this day. Ad etsem hayom hazeh, until bone, the day, the this. The meaning is the exact same day, as in bone of my bones. The writer is penning the narrative, and he says, until this very same day. The same as what? This same term, the very same day, is used in Genesis 7.13, Genesis 17.23, Exodus 12.17, and Joshua 5.11. Each time it is referring to something that happened on the same day that something else happened. But when the word until is used, along with this day, it refers to the day the author writes the passage. And so there's a conundrum. Kyle attempts to reconcile the words by saying, if therefore it has any meaning at all in the present instance, we must connect the whole clause with the one preceding and even construe it as a relative clause where they, the kings, had hidden themselves and they, the Israelites, had placed large stones at the mouth of the cave until that very day on which the kings were fetched out and executed. But what would be the point of saying this? Rather, it appears that the author is either saying until this very same day, meaning the day he is writing, which would be forced and not have any real meaning, or personally, I think he is extending this thought beyond the day of his writing to the day when his words are read, whenever that may be. The meaning would then be that the kings are buried in that cave forever. As unusual as that may be, that is what I propose. Their bodies have been cast away, and the mouth of the cave is covered over forever. Before us stands a brand new day. We shall never return to the past. No, not ever. What marvelous things our God has done when he has sent us, Jesus Christ our Lord, in him the victory, God's own son. He has slain the enemy with his glorious sword. We shall go forth in the strength of Jesus and we shall do it for eternal days. Great and wonderful things God has done for us. And so forever and ever we shall sing his praise. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. In chapter 9, the Gibeonites were brought into a covenant relationship with Israel. Now, 
they are being attacked by five kings, led by the king of Jerusalem, who are said in verse 5 to be of the Amorites, even though they're not actually all Amorites. Amorite means renowned. In verse 1 of chapter 10, it notes the name Adonitzedek and says he is the king of Jerusalem. He had heard of the destruction of Ai. That was typologically the ending of the law for Israel. It also noted the destruction of Jericho. That was typologically given as coming out of the state of anathema, being restored to access to God. Still in verse 1, it noted the king had heard that Gibeon had made peace with Israel. They were brought into a covenant protection. Gibeon is etymologically tied to the name Gabbatha, the knoll where Christ was judged. Jesus submitted himself to the Roman authority in order to establish the new covenant in his blood. The Gibeonites submitted themselves to Joshua in order to enter the covenant relationship that has been established with Israel. Now, this covenant relationship is in jeopardy because of five kings, who I suggest are representative of Israel's depiction in the books of Moses. They are Jerusalem, foundation of peace, Genesis, the Lord establishes Israel, foundation, Hebron, alliance, Exodus, an alliance between Israel and the Lord, such as in the giving of the Ten Commandments and the covenant law, Jarmuth, elevation, Leviticus, the priestly class who interacts with the Lord, elevation, they're being elevated to interact with the Lord, Lachish, obstinate, numbers, Israel's rejection of the Lord, Eglon, heifer-like, Deuteronomy. Moses reminds Israel of their apostasy with the calf in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Jerusalem being the head of this alliance would then represent the law itself. It being the city from which the law is administered as Paul notes in Galatians 4 verse 25. Because of this, the contents of this passage are not at all unlike those of Genesis 34. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch the sermon today. These kings representing the law have come to destroy Gibeon just as Judaizers of the past and the Hebrew roots movement today attempt to destroy the faith of Gentiles who have come to Christ. As Matthew Henry says of this passage, not tying it in with the law, but seeing it as revenge against Gibeon, as Satan, so wicked men cannot abide to lose any of their community. This is exactly what Judaizers and Hebrew roots folks do. Exactly. Verse 4 noted the call to attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. This is just what the Gentiles did with Christ and what the Judaizers in Acts and Galatians did against those same Gentiles. They are not of Israel because they are not of Christ. Go check Romans 9, 6. Instead, they are of the law, which was fulfilled and ended by Christ. Verse 5 noted that they are the five kings of the Amorites, or renowned, even though they are not actually Amorites. It is they who are self-exalted because of their adherence to the law. We are the renowned. There, it notes who they are kings of but not their names, just where they ruled. Their rule is the law, the five books of Moses, and they have camped before Gibeon. Think of Gabbatha to wage war against it. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua, think of Jesus, at Gilgal. Liberty, pleading for help. This is exactly the substance of the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The Judaizers wanted to bring the Gentiles under the bondage of the law. An appeal was made to clarify that matter. It was clarified beautifully in the letter penned from the council. As for the attack by the Judaizers, it is an attempt to destroy the grace of God in these people. But Gibeon calls out with a pun on the name of Joshua. Come up to us quickly, save us, and help us. The word translated as save is the word yasha, from which Joshua and Jesus' name is derived. The call is well reflected by the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The people have asked for Joshua's salvation. They need grace, not the law. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. Think of them calling out to Joshua. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Think of Joshua rescuing them. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now 
is the day of salvation. Verse 6 also said that all the kings of the Amorite, singular, who dwell in the mountain, singular, had gathered against Gibeon. It is the mountain, the government of the law. With that, verse 7 noted that Joshua ascended from Gilgal, liberty, to help the Gibeonites. One cannot help but see the words of Paul in this. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, think of what's going on right now, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The Lord said to Joshua that he had delivered the enemy into his hand. The Judaizers and Hebrew roots people will not prevail. They will all be swept away. The credit of the march from Gilgal was in the singular. Jesus ascended from liberty to aid Gibeon, to aid the Gentiles. It then noted in verse 10 that the Lord, Jehovah, routed the enemy before Israel and killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. Think of Gabbatha. From there, they were chased to Bet Horon, the house of freedom. It is reflective of the words of Jesus, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is through Christ's fulfillment of the law, not ours, that one is set free. He has defeated the law. Verse 10 also noted Azekah and Makedah. The enemy is defeated before a field properly tilled, think of the gospel, for the seed and in a place of shepherds that they watch over the flock. It is in this area that it is said that the Lord destroyed the enemy. He will never forsake his people and he will destroy the enemy before them. Verses 12 through 14 were the poetic insert concerning the work of the Lord on behalf of Israel. It is the Lord who defeated the enemy. The sun standing over Gibeon would be reflective of Gabatha. The moon over Emek Ayalon or depth of Ayalon would then be where Christ derived his strength on the same day before he went to the cross. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. That's Luke twenty-two forty-three. The point is that in a single day, According to Hebrew reckoning, evening to evening, the enemies of Israel had been defeated. The poetic nature of the words highlights the fact. The avenging of the people, Israel, over their enemies, verse 13, means that they have done this through Christ, not on their own. The note concerning the book of Jasher tells us that Jesus, the upright one, the Lord, fights for Israel. As the Gibeonites have become a part of the commonwealth of Israel, it is inclusive of them as well. The account also noted that the entire battle was won on a single, finished, meaning perfect day. Think of Jesus starting his passion in the evening and going all the way through to the next evening. Verses 13 and 14 sum this up, noting that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. It is reflective of the words of Psalm 66, a messianic psalm. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard me. He is attended to the voice of my prayer. Verse 15 curiously ended with Joshua and all Israel returning to the camp at Gilgal. That actually doesn't happen until the end of the chapter, which is next week's sermon. But it is placed there to indicate the liberty that is found in Christ's finished work, not the law. With that, this week's passage opened with the five kings hiding in the cave at Makedah. They tried to hide in a place that has been exposed at the place of shepherds. It tells us that in the church, the law is exposed to reveal Christ, not itself. Joshua then said to roll large stones into its mouth. The law is shut up by Christ. Here's what it says in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Think of all the stones in the mouth and all the world may become guilty before God. It is the law by which we stand guilty before God. It is Christ who takes that guilt away. With that, it's said to appoint over her men to watch them. The cave is the Torah. Both are feminine nouns where the law, meaning the five books of Moses, is that is appointed to be watched over until Joshua, meaning Jesus, directs. While they're hidden there, 
Israel continued to pursue the enemies, tailing them. Every remnant of law observance must be dealt with and eliminated. Grace cannot be earned. Jesus is the true Israel who fulfills every single aspect of the law, thus defeating each for his people. With the entire law vanquished, verse 20, leaving only those who escaped into fortified cities who will be dealt with later, the power of the law is effectively ended. Israel returned to Makedah in peace. Not a word could be spoken against Israel. Those who have trusted in Christ have prevailed. The symbolism of his victory is then given when the mouth of the cave was opened. The law is opened, exposing what is hidden there. The five kings, the five books of Moses are brought out and are named again. King Jerusalem, King Hebron, King Jarmuth, King Lachish, and King Eglon. They have come against the people and now they will be ended. Every man of Israel is called forward and the rulers, the katsin, those who scrape off or determine a matter, are told to place their feet on the necks of the kings. They now possess them in their entirety, signified by the foot. Making on the neck signifies the settling of the matter. The law was an adversary, and now it is defeated. With this, Joshua encouraged them to not be afraid or dismayed, but to be strong and of good courage. Further, it said, For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. As it says in Hebrews 13, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Holding on to Christ's victory means that there is complete victory. The teachings of the Judaizers cannot harm when one holds to Christ's fulfillment of the law. That is then seen in verse 26, where Joshua, think of Jesus, struck the five kings, putting them to death. It is in Christ's death that the law died. This is the typology being seen. The victory over the law is complete, but the picture of it is not yet finished. That is seen in the five kings being hung on five trees. Their place of reign was mentioned three times in this passage, but their names were only mentioned once. Each looks to Christ and his work. Think of this on the cross. Adonid Tzedek, Lord of Righteousness. Hoham, whom Jehovah impels. Piram, indomitable. Japhia, illuminous. And Debir, place of the word. They all point to Christ. What is being seen here is the same typology as with I. Charles Ellicott was close to seeing this. He said, upon the cross of the true Joshua, the enemies of the Israel of God are exhibited. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That's the closest I saw of anybody coming to the typology that we're being seen right here. Charles Ellicott. That's Colossians 2.15 he cited. This is just what is being seen. Christ is the king of the law, he and no other, and he was talah, hung on a tree, becoming a curse for us. Paul explains that in the book of Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The five books of Moses, known as the law, are defeated, but the curse of the law stands without this part of Christ's work. Jesus became a curse so that his people could be freed from the law's demands. Sin is immoral. It is not a physical or ceremonial issue. It infects all people. Christ became a curse under the law. He paid the final penalty for our sin. Our sin, in his fulfillment and ending of the law, hung on the tree, becoming that curse of the law. Think of yourself, your sin on Christ's body being exhibited for the whole world to see. This picture goes beyond that of the hanging of the king of I. It lets us know that it isn't just a part of the law, such as Deuteronomy, that Christ fulfilled, but he is the embodiment of the entire law. The hanging of these five kings reveals this. The reason why I say that is because somebody could argue, well, Jesus fulfilled Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's not what that's picturing. It's picturing all five books of Moses, every precept of the law. Once taken down from the trees, in accordance with the law, it then says that the king's bodies were cast into the cave. The place of being exposed will now hide the law. 
But more, it says that whopping stones were placed upon the mouth of the cave. Not only is the law hidden away, it is completely covered up, being entirely removed from the site through the work of Jesus Christ. With that, the verses ended with the highly unusual phrase that this remains so until this very day. The only explanation I can find for these words is the one that I already gave you. The words extend to any time that they are read forever. The power of the law found in the five books of Moses is removed forever in Christ. Matthew Poole was cited earlier concerning these five kings, saying, to their shame and disgrace and the terror of others. The law is ashamed before Christ. It has no power against him because he has prevailed over it. But this fact is also a note of warning and what should rightfully be terror upon those who hear and fail to understand the significance of what occurred. To throw oneself back under the law is a self-condemning act. The Bible ends with the words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The law is diametrically opposed to grace. If one chooses the law, he has nowhere else to go but to fulfill the law. Paul says as much using circumcision as a benchmark of the law. He says in Galatians 5, 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Think of any precept of the law. Insert it there instead, and you're going to come up with the same thing. Oh, yeah. I tell you, if you give up eating pork because somebody tells you you have to because it's in the law of Moses, you're debtor to the whole law because the law is a codified single unit. If you fail in one precept of the law, James says, you've broken the whole law. Think of tithing. You have to tithe. That's a precept of the law. That's not found in the new covenant, folks. If you're imposing things on people, you are putting them back under a law that has been fulfilled by Christ. The Lord has shown us this same theme so many times since Genesis 1-1 that we simply cannot overlook it or ignore it. The question for all people is, where do you want to hang your hat? You can trust in the law and be judged by the law, meaning every single precept found in the law, or you can trust in Christ's fulfillment of it and be freed from its power. This was one purpose of the law. It was to show us what God expects in order to be right with him. In seeing the enormity of the burden the law carries, it was then to lead us to Jesus. Hence, to say that we will live according to the law standard, guess what, folks? It is to claim a self-righteousness equal to God. It is self-deceiving, and it can only lead to condemnation. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God's provision thus giving all the glory to God and none to self. Be wise, be discerning, and yield yourself to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and please do so today. The gospel is so simple. I always quote it to you. I'm just going to read it because I don't want to get a single word of it wrong for you. This is the gospel. This is it. Talking to my friend, I talk to him once or twice a week. He calls me up and when we talk, he always says the same thing because he's a guy that trusts in grace. I'm going to tell you, he understands his nature as a sinner like nobody I've ever talked to in my life. And I think the same thing in my head all the time. You don't understand grace. Here's grace. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what we're supposed to believe. Nothing else. There's nothing else that is affixed to the word grace. That is all the work of Jesus. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that if you believe what I just read you, the simple gospel, Christ died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner. Christ was buried, meaning that he really died and took your sins into the grave. And that Christ rose again, meaning he is God that he has prevailed over sin and that your sin is still in the grave. If you believe that simple message, you will be saved. Paul says in Ephesians 1, the moment you believe that, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it is a guarantee, an absolute guarantee of our future redemption. That's all that God expects of you, not to go trying to work your way and say, okay, you did a good job, Jesus, but I can do better. Don't do that. 
What we do after being saved is to go to the New Testament, the epistles where our doctrine lays, and to read it and say, this is what God expects of me to live holy and properly before him. That is where we are to go. Okay? Don't go back to the law and say, you know, I need to give this up and give that. He's already done that for you. Put all that behind you and learn the New Testament epistles. This is what God is telling us. As I said a minute ago, he has said it so many times in so many different ways. Go back to Genesis 34. Go back two sermons. Go back four sermons. He keeps saying it again and again and again. The law is at enmity with you. One law. Adam was given one law and it was in the negative. Don't do this thing. And it brought death on all people. Trust in Jesus. He took care of the entire law of Moses. Great stuff from a great God. Our closing verse comes from Colossians 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, think of these people, he has made alive together with him. It doesn't say that you did it. It says he's done it. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out, that means erased. You go over there with a... Well, I got it here somewhere. I got an eraser. You just go over there and it's gone. Okay. Having wiped out the handwriting, meaning the law of requirements that was against us. Think of what we just listened to, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. Think of what we just went through in these verses. He made a public spectacle over them. Think of those guys laying there on the ground with feet on their necks. It's exactly what he did, triumphing over them in it, the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Joshua 10, 28 through 43. His victory is complete and it is grand. It's entitled, So Joshua Conquered All the Land. That'll be our 22nd Joshua sermon. I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy, and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a poem for you, but before I give you this poem, this is going to be hard, but if you listen to the Esther series, you will get it. I'm deviating from Chick-fil-A. Last week, you would have gotten Chick-fil-A. I'm deviating from that because this was more costly than the $10 that it's worth, okay? Somebody in here who hates needles... literally is terrified of them, gives blood every eight weeks. And he got this and he wanted to donate it to you for getting a right question from the Bible. Okay. It's my sissy brother, Ethan. Okay. (laughs) He's given like gallons and gallons of blood. Okay. I got up to 14 gallons and they won't take my blood anymore. And actually it was more than that because I used to give in the military and in high school, which wasn't counted, but I got up to 14 gallons at Sarasota and they stopped taking it. So I can't give any more, but he still can get poked. So this is not easy, but if you've listened to the Esther sermons, you're going to get this. I can't believe I gave it away. Esther. All right. Nobody gets, nobody gets, yeah, everybody gets a calendar. Okay. I was going to ask you, where's the longest verse, not the longest sentence in the Bible. Okay. The book of Esther. I can't believe it. I'm so excited about giving away this thing that, uh, let me think of a question really quickly. Um, uh, hang on. Uh, give me one second. We're going to get this out today. I'm, I'm going to get, that's so funny. I'm such a peanut head. Um, let's see here. Okay. This is going to be really easy. Judah got exiled to Babylon. A few people were left stragglers in the land. They grabbed the prophet Jeremiah and took him to Egypt. There you go. Congratulations. I told you it'd be easy, but I had to get that out today. You can thank him. Don't thank me. I screwed up the first one. Okay, we got a short poem and then we'll be done. This is called the Battle for Gibeon Part 2. Before I go on, did everybody get the symbolism? Is it not amazing? It's, it's amazing what God keeps putting into his word. It's, it is precious. And here we ignore it. And we just do crazy things with our lives. The word of God, dwell on it, think on it, read it, meditate on it. Love this word. Because God is telling us one thing overall. I said at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus. From the very beginning to the very end, he's telling us about Jesus. And Jesus gives us grace. That's what I said. Yes, he gives us life. He gives us 
good cookies and stuff when we get to heaven, whatever. But he gives us grace. We need that first. I'm supposing, I just said, when we get to heaven. I don't know. I'm just trying to say every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. If we have cookies in heaven, it's because we got them through Jesus. There we go. That was the point I was making. Not that we're going to get cookies in heaven. I'm not adding to the Bible there. Of course we are. We'll hope so. Okay. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves at Makedah in a cave. And it was told Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah, all trembly and not so brave. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them like a prison yard. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities. Please understand, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them, not showing any pities with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. All was well. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the cave's mouth, so let it be and bring out those five kings from the cave to me. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon. For them, things were looking grave. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war, those who went with him, to them he did tell, come near, put on the necks of these kings your feet. And they drew near and put their feet on the necks, a sign of their defeat. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. That wouldn't be right. Be strong and of good courage for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening, attracting a lot of flies and fleas. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees, cast them into a cave where they had been hidden as the situation demanded. And laid large stones against the cave's mouth, big stones on display, which remain until this very day. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. All right, if we think about... The law. Think of the cave. The law is a feminine word. The cave is a feminine word. What is God telling us with that? He's telling us that that is what exposes. The word cave means to bring out or to expose or to make bare or naked. It exposes our sin. This is what the law was intended to do. It was not intended to bring us closer to God, but to show us our depraved state before the Lord and how desperately we need Jesus Christ. Call on Jesus. Give your life to him. And thank him for what he has done. He's the fulfillment of all of these pictures. Every single detail. And God isn't missing a thing. Oh, we had the fulfillment of the law of Moses with the hanging of the king of Ai, didn't we? But then somebody could come along and say, well, that was just Deuteronomy. I mean, somebody could say that. And so the Lord covers the bases. And he says, oh, all five of the books of Moses, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even Genesis and Exodus. It's all there. It's a united whole. And God wants us to sing about the grace of Jesus Christ and for what he has done for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done. You are so wonderful to have freed us from this burden. And thank you that even the people that were under that yoke, that bondage, were given grace during the year through the sacrificial system that you gave them so that they could be forgiven and that they would not be separated from you. But now that avenue is done. There's no longer any atonement for sin except in the blood of Jesus. And so we lift up Israel today that their eyes will be open to this truth. And all of the people stuck in these crazy cults, Lord, that are working out their salvation through deeds of the law, 
open their minds and their hearts so that they can get away from that instead of being condemned. May it be so to your glory. Amen. Yeah. To be honest, it's so prevalent in Israel too these days, uh, especially most of Israel is secular, as uh, some of you already know, but uh, there's a big group of Orthodox Jews who are still in the law. Uh, but because the law cannot save them, they've got all this on top of the law to try to explain how can we even live with ourselves. Because if you ask any Jew today in Israel, well, you know, they know they can't do the law. They know they can't even do sacrifices. So what are they doing? How, how, are, you in, how are you all right with, the, with God? And the answer is always something that one rabbi said, another rabbi said, uh, the Kabbalah said, this said, and they just start piling up and it all collapses because it's just words of man and trying to explain things when the truth is so simple, Jesus Christ, when the answer is so simple. Um, and so now in Israel, we have uh, groups of Messianic Jews and some of them still do the traditions, but not as a means of to be saved or to be righteous or follow the, the the law, but just as in someone uh, uh, does a tradition to for the Lord to glorify the Lord, knowing they already have been saved and they're just doing it out of love without forcing anyone else to do that. So when uh, I hang out with Yossi in Israel or someone else, we always go and I join in Hanukkah where they build a sukkah and they talk how this points to Christ rather than we need to do this to be saved. So, um, which is exactly what Ezekiel says. It's going to be commemorative sacrifices. Yes, commemorative. Oh, that's that's right. Yeah. Ah, yes. Why do and, they have sacrifices? It's commemorative. Com- they're, they're remembering the deeds of the Lord. Yeah, and that was my question. Also, how come after everything's gone and Israel comes to the Lord and He's with them, how come they're still doing some kind of sacrifices if the Lord's done? Commemorative. commemorative. It is commemorative. to point to what the work of Christ. Wow, oh, beautiful. Okay, so we we'll go to um, the Lord's Supper. Oh.